All right, so Labor Day. We think about Labor Day. God designed us for work. And we look back to Genesis. We see that uh, after the fall, part of the judgment from Genesis, that, that God told Adam, he said, hey, you're going to labor in the field, and it's not going to produce a whole lot. You're going to labor really hard to get through it. And often we think that's where work started, and it's kind of a bad thing. Uh, but actually, when you look back in Genesis, God placed the garden, and he put Adam in that garden, and he brought Eve along to be his helpmeet, to help him do something, and that was to tend and take care of the garden. So from the very beginning, God showed his handiwork, his work by speaking creation into being. He passed it on to us to continue to recreate from his beauty uh, and on to today. So work is actually a beautiful thing. The problem, though, with that is we bring that idea of work into our spiritual life, and sometimes we struggle with that. Because when we work, we love the fruit of our labor. I don't know about you, but if I, if I clean up a riverbank or I paint something or I do something hard labor, I, I enjoy at the end going, that's pretty neat. I did that. And then we get into our work situation because we all have to work and we can be thankful on Labor Day of God giving us the ability to work and to, and to provide for us that living that we need. But sometimes when we, get, we also can see that work, as we try to climb that ladder, can turn into this, this idea of what I'm, what I'm coining the, the legally moral options or requirements of work in that as little kids, we're taught if we do well, we get blessed. If we do bad, we get punished. And then that legal idea goes into our schools. And if y'all remember, most of y'all are in school at some point in time. Uh, if you do well in, in school, you behave, you get rewarded. If you misbehave, you get punished. And it's so easy for us to carry that into our, our spiritual life as well. And you can see, maybe from your experiences from uh, different seasons of your life and walking with God, or maybe in different uh, denominations. I grew up in a different denomination. And it was very focused on being a good person. It was very focused on, on serving community and was less focused on walking with Christ. And it's very easy for us to fall into this trap of, of looking at, well, I'm a good person. Therefore, God has to allow me into heaven. I do good things. I help old ladies across the street. Therefore, God owes me. It's very easy to fall into that trap and we struggle with that. And what I want you to see today from Colin read the, the story about the centurion is Jesus is breaking this down. And he's saying, as he's, uh, John preached last week, he's flipping the script on us. Jesus is being countercultural, and he's reaching across cultural barriers here to bring the gospel to us and to show us it's not about what we do to earn our salvation. It's who is our authority and who we are in Christ. Now, he does talk about later on, we need to be on mission for him, but that comes after we know who Jesus is. So let's go to... Um, Matthew chapter 8 with me, and I want to walk through very quickly and connect back into what we've been talking about for the last several months, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we looked at the, the text, or looked at the text of uh, chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. John preached on this last week, and he said, when Jesus finished these sayings, so the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew is, is comparing Jesus' authoritative preaching and the word he came with that he, that he delivered with power compared to the religious rulers of a day who were just throwing out rules 
for us to, to be good in God's eyes, so they thought. And then it goes into the story. We skipped over. We didn't look at it uh, or read it earlier. But verses 1 through 4, chapter 8, it says, When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So he's finished the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down to, from the mountain, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. And he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus, the text says, stretched out his hand. He touched the leper and made him clean. A miracle. But what's interesting is in the Jewish context, all his disciples saw him as a rabbi. And under the Jewish law, if they touched the, if they touched the leper, he had to go outside the city gates for seven days until he was declared clean. He could not minister. So Jesus is taking a risk here. He's taking a risk of receiving that disease. He's also taking a theological risk that he's going to be separated by the authorities from his disciples. But he reaches radically across and pursues this leper and touches him. And he's going to do the same thing with this centurion. So what I want you to see as we walk through the centurion, this big idea, this main thing, thing I want you to take away today, as the ultimate authority, as the ultimate authority, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, sitting on his throne, he's going to radically pursue each one of you. And by radical, I mean this countercultural idea. John last week talked about this idea of Jesus flipping the script on everybody cross-cultural and theologically as well. So in this narrative of this, of this story, I want you to see there's two results of Jesus' authority and his loving pursuit of us. Two results. The first one, the first idea, is you're going to see the outsider submits. The outsider submits to the king. This is also recorded in Luke. So if you have an opportunity to go read Luke's account, read this account, compare them. There's a, there's a little bit of information in both of them to give you the full story. And I'll talk a little bit about some of it. But let's look at verses uh, 5 through, uh, we'll just read 5 and 6. It says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said, I'll keep going. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, right there, there's, there's a really interesting setup. So what is a centurion? I know many of y'all probably know this, but I'll just quickly review it. Centurion, the word that talks about it really means 100. So the centurion is a military leader in charge of 100 men. Now, scholars think that maybe this was a general term, but really what this is, is we can take it as there was a Roman garrison. We know there's a Roman garrison in Capernaum. And so this is probably the leader of that garrison in Capernaum. He is a Roman soldier, so to get to that position, he's had to have battlefield experience. He's has to have wisdom. He's got to have, have some kind of maturity because he's he's leading a hundred men in battle. And think back, think back, to, you know, two thousand years ago, who would you pick? Who would you grab to be your frontline soldiers? So you've got to be able to lead those and control those men. So he's got some understanding. He's got some clout. And he talks about in verses uh, uh, eight, nine. He talks about um, that he's. He's a man under authority as well. And he tells his soldiers to go, and they do. And he tells his servants to do. But he also is implying that he, as a centurion, also has commanders above him. He has commanders above them. And he, as a Roman soldier, especially a centurion, had, they had to uh, plead allegiance to the Caesar. They had to plead allegiance to the Roman king. They had to plead allegiance to him as a god. 
not just a king, but as a God as well. Now, he said he's in Caesarea. I'm sorry, in Capernaum, different town. Capernaum on the north side of Galilee. Think about that, what's going on this time. He is a foreigner. He's a leader of the invading and occupying army within this small city. So there is a division. There is a social division between the Jews and the Romans. They did not like each other. So imagine if we had an invading army and they had a garrison right across the street. We probably wouldn't like them very much. Same thing going on. The Romans thought that the Jews were just heathens. They hated them. They could, do, they could really basically do anything to them because they were an occupying army. So here's the leader of this occupying army in this small little fishing village. There is a division. There is a cultural division. But yet, this centurion goes to Jesus, verse 5, and says, appealing to him. He appeals to him. This centurion has power. He has an army behind him. He's the, he is authority in this small town occupying over the Jews, but yet he goes to this Jewish rabbi coming down from this hill from preaching this sermon, and he appeals to him. He doesn't direct him. He doesn't order him. He appeals to him. And look what he says. He doesn't, he doesn't come right out and say, come to my house and do something for me, which he could have every legal right to do. He could have ordered Jesus to do it. He just states a fact, and he says, I have a servant that's paralyzed terribly suffering. Luke says that he's on the point of death. He just lays out the facts. He doesn't ask anything. He's seeking Jesus, and he sees something in Jesus' authority, knows that Jesus can help. But Jesus radically pursues him cross-culturally, and before he can say it, Jesus says, I'll come to your house, and I'll heal this servant. This is very similar to him touching that leper. Jesus is stepping across that cultural and that, that occupying army, this person who is, the, who is the enemy, he's stepping across that and says, I will come to your house, which will further make him more unclean ceremonially and spiritually. He voluntarily goes and radically pursues this pagan centurion. But there's a reason the centurion came to him, because he sees his authority. So why did, why did he come, though? If you notice there, he, he doesn't talk about anything about himself. The centurion says, my servant. He comes on behalf of another. Now, granted, there's some probably benefit to the centurion if he has his servant well. Um, but he's an occupying army. He could just go get another servant, couldn't he? But he has compassion for this one servant. John talked about last week that Matthew, throughout this gospel, he is portraying Jesus. The theme is Jesus is the king. As I said, the centurion... He serves the Caesar, the king, the Roman king. He comes from a pagan culture. Again, he sees Caesar not only as king, but as God. But here, he demonstrates a robust understanding of ultimate authority, the ultimate authority lying within the Jesus standing before him. This is a picture of the centurion not just asking for help. This is a picture of the centurion in subordination to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is stepping also across cross-culturally cross and saying, Jesus, you are the ultimate authority. And I know if you just speak the word, you can heal my servant. He humbly approaches Jesus. And he gives kind of a, um, 
the idea of military uh, recognition and honor. You know, for those of us who are in the military, there's a lot, a lot in the room, or you have been, there's this idea of the military salute. Uh, it shows the, that someone salutes someone first that's senior to them. They render an honor to them first, and the senior returns it. Here, the centurion is appealing to Jesus. He is saying, you are the authority, not me. I'm the invading army. I have control, but you are the ultimate authority. It's very similar. To, there's a, you're talking about history and our, our national holidays. October 1776. Anybody remember those days? Anything going on in 1776 in our country? Little, little, little fight with the, with the British. We're trying to establish our freedoms, try to establish our nation. It was a tough go. You remember your revolutionary history. Well, the continental, uh, continental states, maybe they formed a continental navy and a continental army. The navy was really small, and they're going against the, going against the greatest navy at that time in the world, the British Navy. And there's this one particular ship. It's one of the first ships uh, commissioned, and its name was the Andrea Dora. We got it from, we think, the Italians, so we named it after one of their guys, Andrea Dora. And if you read it, it's kind of interesting. They go down to the Caribbean, and they, they defeat a couple small British ships that take them captive, and they actually go down to this one place in the Caribbean. They find this British fort. They get behind their lines. They actually invade it with Marines, and they steal all their gunpowder. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. As they're sailing away, they sail by a Dutch island. Now, the Dutch were actually our allies because they did not like the British either. And as they go by this Dutch island, their intention was to see if they're friendly or not, and they had a copy of the Declaration of Independence, and they were going to take to the Dutch on this island. As they came close to the, to the fort, the Dutch had guns there, and the Andredor was sailing close. The Dutch lowered their national ensign. They shot salute cannons to them, and the Andredoria did the same thing. That was the first time any nation had rendered honors to what would become the United States of America. The Dutch were saying, we see you and we honor you as sovereign. Very similar to the centurion going, I see you. And Jesus, I honor you as sovereign over me. And he asked for help for his servant. He humbly seeks out Jesus. He asks him. It's kind of like asking, seeking, and knocking. But Jesus, in his radical pursuit for him, beats him to the punch and offered to come to his house. So this morning, God invited you here this morning. You may have been invited by somebody else. You may have found us online and you was like, I'm just going to come visit this church. You may be coming here for a long time and come into service this morning out of, out of your love for, love for God and love for this place. But I'm telling you, Jesus is radically pursuing you and he brought you here this morning to hear about the centurion's faith. Because Jesus is going to comment on it in a minute. We've heard it read before, but you'll see where it's going. So I ask you, do you see Jesus as your senior, as your authority? Or do you see him as a wish granter in this idea of this moral, legally moral climb in life? Can you, can you say you approach his throne of grace and humility and faith as the centurion did? It's interesting, in Luke's account, the same story, he, the centurion has, he sends some messengers ahead, and he sends some Jewish people ahead to vouch for him to Jesus. And they tell Jesus, hey, this centurion's a good guy. Don't judge him for his outward appearance. 
He takes care of us, the community, and he helped us build our synagogue. So in other words, he likes us. Jesus didn't really need that. And I don't think that's, I think that's why Matthew doesn't include it here. Because John talks about that Jesus knows what's in our heart. He knows what's in man. So what about you? Do you need people to vouch for your honor? Vouch for your character? Would they speak about you as reflecting the glory of God in all things you do? Now, when I came up with that question, I, I was pretty convicted this week. It's been beating me up all week because I don't know if, if I'm honest, if someone could read my heart, if they could vouch for me. But that's something I want to work on with Christ. I want to work on every day to say, Jesus, you're my authority, not me. You're God, not me. Could you listen to the Holy Spirit today and approach with the same humility as the centurion? We all come with baggage, though. The good news is, as I said, Jesus radically pursues us. He's going to meet us where we are. He doesn't call us to clean ourselves up. He says, I already know what's going on in your heart. I'm going to meet you. I know you have this spiritual leprosy, but I'm going to reach out and touch your life. I'm going to enter into your home when you, th- you don't think I'm, I'm worthy to be there because you need, think you need to clean yourself up. He calls us in humility to come to him. And like the centurion, as Paul writes in Philippians, consider others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but look onto the interests of others. So the centurion is a great example of how as outsiders we can submit to Jesus' authority, his power, his might for our benefit. Because he paid it all for us. He provides the way to salvation, but he also provides the way for us to humbly, if I can get that word out, humbly follow him and reflect his, the glory of his image, which he's called us to do from the very beginning. So the outsider submits. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is the king rejoicing. Verse 10 has some really interesting words. I'm going to walk through it with you. The centurion submits. He has this idea of authority. Talks about it and says, I know authority. I'm a man under authority. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, don't miss this, he marveled and said, to those who followed him. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I don't know about you all, but that doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? And what he's talking about there is the end times. And there will be many who many Jews will come from the diaspora who have been spread all through the world. They're going to come back. They're going to be, be at this table with Christ. And, and he's going to turn to them and say, I never knew you because you missed me. And it's not just the, the Jews. It's also us too. Because if we're just dressing up and we're just playing church, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. He talked about this in the Sermon in the Mount. He said, not everybody comes to me and calls me Lord, Lord, and does all these things for me. We're going to enter my kingdom of heaven. He's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. He's talking about that relationship with him. Do you see him as your Lord and your Savior has authority in your life? Or are we just playing dress up? Are we just acting acting the role? Jesus is calling us, and he's saying, come into a walk with me. Let me be Lord of your life in everything that you do. But I want to go back to this idea of he marveled. 
Have you thought about when it says, the scripture says that Jesus, the God-man, he marveled at the centurion's faith? Did you catch that? He marveled. He rejoiced. He was elated at this faith he's seen in the centurion. Yes, he pursued him, and the centurion pursued him back, but he marveled. The God of the universe marveled at a man. This is only the second time this is, this is used in the, in the New Testament. Now, Luke uses it as well. It's the same, it's the same uh, story. But go with me to uh, Mark chapter 6. I think we've got it up. Mark chapter 6. You see Jesus, it goes back to Nazareth. Goes back to his hometown. He preaches in their synagogue, and he's talking about uh, who he is. Kind of, in, He doesn't directly say he's the Christ, but he's trying to teach them through the Old Testament, trying to teach them for what they understand. And his friends and his family look at him like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? What are you talking about, Jesus? Aren't you the kid of the carpenter? Aren't you the little guy? You can't be this Messiah guy. How, how could you, how'd you get all this learning? They didn't believe him. They rejected him. And the scriptures say, and they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a, quoting uh, Jeremiah, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, except with his relatives and his own household. And he could not do mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled, there's the second time, the only other time in the New Testament, he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief, but then he, in the text that we're looking at, he marveled at the belief of the centurion. Here's this pagan guy, and he marvels at his belief because the centurion sees Jesus for who he is. His friends and his family missed it because they couldn't get past their own bias. They couldn't get past their own ideas of, are these stories really true in the Bible? The centurion submitted to the authority of Christ and said, you're my God. He marvels at it and he says, this faith I haven't found in Israel. And what he's really saying is the gospel is open to everybody, but it's not automatic just because you are born of Abraham. Paul makes this point in Romans uh, chapters 2 through 4. And we're gonna, if you'll turn there, we're going to go through that verse by verse. Oh, we'll be here all day. In chapters 2 through 4, Paul is talking about he's having this argument. He's saying, hey, everybody is utterly lost. The Gentiles are lost. And hey, Jews, you say you're Abraham's son. You say you follow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you follow the law and all those things. You're lost as well. Because you have failed to see that I'm the Messiah. You have failed to see that I'm the Christ. You failed to see that I am the one who has covered the, the sin debt for you. You've, you know the Old Testament, but you missed the most important parts. You're doing all the things. And he walks through circumcision and memorization and all that stuff. And he said all that cannot be counted as righteousness. Just because, just because you're in a family, just because you wear the t-shirt, just because you show up to church doesn't mean anything. Paul says it's the justification through Christ alone of what he did on the cross for you. That is how you come to know him. And that's what happened to the centurion. That's how the centurion was able to look at Jesus and say, I'm God, he is. He's got the power, not me. And Jesus marvels at this belief. I haven't seen it in a while, maybe because I haven't searched for it, but um, through, the, through our conflicts in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you would see uh, on Facebook or something, you'd see these stories and these videos of individuals who, who would uh, go to ceremonies, funerals, and other things, or they'd show up at celebrations and they'd wear a uniform. 
And when the videos are exposing them as, as just people who are dressing up, acting like war veterans and heroes, we called it the stolen valor. And you would see them, and they, they often get caught because they don't know how to put the uniform on right, and, and they, people catch them in their lies. What they're doing is, is they're trying to, for you know, many reasons, but ultimately they want the recognition. They want the glory. They want the prize. They want the honor of being a war veteran, but they don't want the commitment of it. They don't want the idea of submitting under an authority. They just want all the good without the work piece of it. The labor piece, which is really easy for us just to submit to him. But it's hard day to day, isn't it? But Jesus calls us to do it. So John's been asking this question for two sermons. So I'll ask you again. What will you do with this Jesus? This Jesus who preached this sermon with power and authority, what will you do with him? Because it ultimately comes down to that, doesn't it? We can talk about stories all day long, but it ultimately comes down to the person sitting in your seat, not the one next to you, you and your heart. What will you do with this Jesus? Do you see his authority? Do you see Jesus in this place who brought you here today as the centurion did? And what would it look like for Jesus to marvel at your belief versus your unbelief? We all struggle sometimes with belief. We'll talk about that in a minute. But think about the God of the universe marveling at your belief or really rejoicing. It's how easy it is for us to be like his friends in Nazareth or the... Or the, the uh, the Pharisees who say it's all about just doing this, this legally moral thing, and we miss the risen Savior right in front of our face. You know, some things you could do, it might be simply just being thankful for the fact that you got up this morning, you came to church this morning, be thankful for the good things in your life, the beautiful weather, the great family. I know not all of y'all have perfect families. Uh, nobody does, but be thankful for them. Be thankful for the challenging times as well because we know that God, the Scriptures tell us, He is working and refining our character through that time. He's going to bring blessings out of that time even though we can't see it. And that blessing may not be in your life or your vision. The blessing may be the centurion or you asking for prayer for somebody else and He blesses their life. Consider yourselves, uh, consider others more significant than yourselves. This can also be complex too. It can be as complex as trusting God in the moment when, you, when you're out of options. You have nowhere, nowhere else to go. You don't know what to do. You've asked all your friends, and you're in a bad place. You know, that's the time to finally go, okay, maybe I'm not God. Maybe this creator of the universe has got more power and ideas than I do. That's where God wants us. Maybe this idea of um, working through this this legally moral thing. If I do right, I get blessings. If I do bad, I don't. Maybe eradicating that out of your spiritual growth and your walk with God and focusing on, I just need to sit and be with Jesus. I need to sit and spend time with him and listen to him every day, reading through his word and praying with him and hanging out with people who do. And let that Holy Spirit speak and pierce into your heart. That's called learning to seek and knock and to hear Jesus, getting to know him. It's probably a good thing we can do a little bit more of, isn't it? 
So I ask you, we've talked about two characters in this story. Are there any more characters in this story? Anybody? Shout them out. Any more characters? Yeah. Yes. I love it. Let's go to, look back in verse 10. So obviously there's the centurion. There's Jesus. Somebody earlier said, well, there's the servant who got healed. Yeah, okay, I'll grant you that. But I think the, the most important person in this story is found in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, if Jesus is God and he's the creator of the universe and he's the agent of creation and he is, he is the guy who went to the cross for us and rose from the grave and he says something, it's probably pretty important. I think Jesus, every word he said and every person he talked to was very specific and designed for a purpose. He, and he said to them, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So who are these disciples? Who is the disciple in the story? Who are the followers? Well, obviously in the context, it's the, the ones who are with him and came down from the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I don't know what the word is, proclaim. I'm going to say that those followers are you. That person sitting in your seat, Jesus, Jesus is here to speak to you this morning. You are the main character of this story because he's telling you and reminding you and showing you the example of this pagan guy who submitted to him, the outsider submits, and the king rejoices. The Holy Spirit, I believe, carried Matthew and Luke along to preserve the story over thousands of years for each one of us to know that through our faith, just through our faith of coming to Christ, he will be marveled. He will be amazed. As it talks about he celebrates in heaven when any one of his sheep come home. And that's you. So how about making our Lord marvel today? How about looking at him with amazement as well? But that does take some faith. We all struggle with faith. We all have those questions. And that's okay because there's another story that's linked to this one. John the Baptist preceded Jesus. He was the one speaking in the wilderness. Remember, John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus. But even John the Baptist doubted. John the Baptist, we see in, in Luke, Luke chapter 7. Let's bring that up. Luke chapter 7. John, John the Baptist has been imprisoned. We, we know later he's going to be beheaded. He's in prison, and he's alone. And he's, he's probably doing what all of us do. He's like, is this Jesus really the Messiah? Is he the one? And he sends his disciples to go ask him. Go ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you really the one, Jesus? Are you really the one I'm going to die for? Or should we look for another? And listen to what Jesus tells his disciples. Jesus says in verse 22, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. This is what he says. Tell him the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, that sounds like a, Jesus just could be a magician doing all these things, right? But he's quoting all these scriptures from Isaiah. We cut, some of them are cut off, and I apologize. But Jesus, in a very quick response, the creator of the universe unpacks everything Isaiah of who the, who the Messiah is, and he says, John, I'm the guy. Because John knew his Old Testament. John, the Messiah, does all these things. I've highlighted what he said and brings encouragement. Telling John, 
I am that authority. Then there's another story I want to walk you through. John chapter 9. It's another healing. In John 9, it says, as he passed by, John uh, chapter 1, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, now let's look at the question. He asked him, and they're getting ready to ask him a morally legal question. They're getting ready to ask him, hey, is this about doing good things when we get rewarded or bad things when we get punished? His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's a very common thing in Jewish tradition at this point in time to realize or to see that if you have some kind of curse on you, something bad happens to you, that you did bad. And if you're blessed, you did good. This is, the, this is the world where we fall to very quickly. Read the book of Job. It's all through there. His counselor's like, what did you do? Just curse God and die. And he's like, nope. I'm going to honor God as God. But look what Jesus says. Jesus answered them. It was not that the man sinned or his parents. Here's the purpose of his, here's the purpose of his blindness. That the works of God might be displayed in him. This guy was born from born, born blind from birth, that God's glory might be revealed. And Jesus is about to show it to you. Uh, he says, uh, verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, uh, when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So then he goes, to, so Jesus goes to the blind guy. So he's talking to his disciples and they're asking about this guy over here. And then he goes to him, he says, Do you want to be healed? Do you want us to receive your sight? And he says, yes, I do. He says, do you believe? He says, I do. And he heals him. And then he gets up and kind of like uh, the people who see uh, the, the lame walking. So all his friends come to him and say, wait a minute, well, you, were, you were blind. You've been blind since, since birth. And you, you've been relegated to be a beggar on the streets and you can't read. You can't, you're not educated. All you can do is beg because you can't work. How, are you really this guy or are you your twin? And he's like, hey, this guy named Jesus touched me. All he did was put some mud on my eyes and I rinsed off and I could see. I don't know anything else other than that, that this Jesus came and I believed. Well, his friends didn't believe him, so they said, well, let's, go, let's take him to the Pharisees. Let's take him to the temple. We'll figure out what's going on here. And what was going on was the Pharisees were persecuting anybody who said Jesus was the Christ because Jesus had become very popular at this point. People were going in masses to hear him preach. So anybody who said that Jesus was the Christ, they were kicking them out of the synagogue, kicking them out of the temple, which means they were removing them from their community. They were ostracizing them. Again, it's countercultural. So they bring him before the Pharisees, and um, they ask him, they, they say, hey, who, who, who did this? And this guy's like, I, I, it's a prophet. It was a prophet. Um, well, they didn't believe him, so they said, well, go to his parents. Was this guy, they, they bring his parents in, say, hey, what's was your son really born blind? And his parents, not wanting to uh, get thrown out, they kind of give this, they kind of thread the needle, and they say, hey, um, this is the richly paraphrase. They go, hey, uh, yeah, that's our son, and he was blind. We don't know why, why he can see now, but he's of age, so go ask him. So they, they go ask this guy. So the Pharisees are like, okay, let's do that. So they bring him back in. So now this kangaroo court continues. They bring back the, the guy. And, and they, they, make a, they make a statement. They say, hey, uh, we know that Jesus is a sinner. You're saying that Jesus is a prophet and he healed you. Um, so what's up with that? Look at verse 25, what, how he responds. Now here's this, 
Think about this in context, who this guy is. He's born blind his entire life. He can't do any work. He's a beggar. He's an outcast. He's a nobody. He's uneducated. But I want you to listen to how he understands the authority of Christ, and he turns everything upside down, and he defeats the Pharisees' arguments. Verse 25. Whether he, Jesus, is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. His personal encounter with Christ is no different than any of us. He's like, hey, I don't know what happened, but this Jesus guy healed me, and and that's pretty cool. Despite everything you're saying, he's a bad guy, all this, I don't care, because Jesus healed me. Next verse, the Pharisees respond, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. And listen to how this, this blind, formerly blind beggar, uneducated man responds. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It's a pretty good argument. They were trying to say that Jesus was a sinner. and Why? Because if we go back in the story, they figure out that he healed this guy, gave him his sight on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees were all torn up and mad and calling Jesus a sinner because he did something on the Sabbath that they, according to their law, said he wasn't supposed to do. But Jesus entered into, radically pursued this guy, and to prove his point and that he is the creator of the world, he healed this guy of his sight. He gave sight to a man who's been blind since birth. Now this guy has the opportunity to actually make a living to support his family. But yet the fairies are saying, nah, he did it on the Sabbath. He wasn't wearing the right shirt. He wasn't, he wasn't going to the right church. Therefore, he's a sinner. They're saying they're morally, legally moral, climbing that ladder. And this guy's saying, wait a minute. If this guy's a sinner, he couldn't have done it because God wouldn't have done, done that. Verse 34, so the Pharisees hear this. They get mad at him for rebuking them, Pharisees, because they know everything. And then he says, you were born in utter sin. You teach us. And they cast him out. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, guy received his sight, and then he gets thrown out of his community. That's, is that what God calls us to do? But Jesus finds him. He explains to the man that he is the son of man. He is the Messiah. And the man for me blind looks at him and says, Lord, I believe. He submits to his authority. He involuntarily places himself under Jesus' mission, and he worshiped him, it says in verse 35. The blind man marveled at Jesus. And although the scripture doesn't say it, I think Jesus marveled at the blind man's testimony of who he was to the Pharisees. He stood up to him and said, I don't know, but here's what I do know, that the Savior of the world came and saved me. He opened my eyes. Now, there's a physical opening there, but he also opened my spiritual eyes to see the Messiah standing in front of me today. So what would need to change in your life for the Lord to be amazed or marveled at your faith. 
I'm not calling everybody to, to work more. I'm calling you to walk more with Christ. And the follow-through will be more serving. This is a call for each one of us, no matter where you are in your faith walk with Christ, because we all can get better with him, get tighter with him. It's a call to come home to the, to the arms of our Father through Jesus Christ. He's calling you and radically pursuing you today. I want to close with this. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus, and what are you going to do about it? Because ultimately it comes down to that question, right? The person sitting in your seat has to deal with that question just like the centurion, just like the blind man had to do. Jamie, let's pull up Isaiah 61. Isaiah speaking of the Messiah to come, the Christ, 800 years before this would happen. He records, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, speaking of Christ, to bring good news to the people. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Now, some of us, there are, we are physically bound by certain things, but ultimately we're bound by sin, the sin of our own heart. And Jesus has come to unlock those doors, unlock those chains. We can lay those at the foot of the cross. And he does it radically, and he does it cross-culturally. Cross it's not just for people who wear the T-shirt. It's for any of us. So what will you do with this Jesus? Will you answer his RSVP to his party? Will you be counted as those who know him and not just do things for him? I encourage you today, church, to be someone who is of him, to walk with him. Let us pray.